online marketing changes all the time. And for content creators like us, it makes it really difficult for us to not look like idiots when you look at our content from the archives. So in today's episode, we save you the trouble of looking into all these archives and putting us to shame because we did it ourselves and we're going to go through 10 things that we don't recommend you do anymore, but we use to recommend. Let's get started. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. No hype, no BS, no censorship. Just real life online marketing tactics. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Authority Hacker Podcast. I am back with my business partner, Mark. And traditionally, how's it going, Mark? Yeah, same <laughs> as last week, same as every other 201 episodes we've done, I think. My hair has gone slightly longer this time, so it's looking a little bit more normal. But thank you, everyone, for the lovely comments that you all posted I was going to say it's the biggest takeaway. Facebook and, and stuff last week. A, lo a lot of uh, solidarity in, in, in that as well. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think I'll be able to go to hairstyles next week, so I'm pretty excited for that. If you're new to the show, by the way, we are going to be talking about actionable tactics, not sleazy stuff, etc. We've been doing online marketing for a while, so we just try to talk to you like we're, if we're in the bar, basically. That's kind of like the frame of this podcast, is we want to be like if, as if we were hanging out after a conference and then talking about online marketing, and we try to recreate this ambience here, so that's what we're going to try to do here. Uh, we're going to try to be as transparent as we can, but the problem with transparency is that sometimes... I mean, especially in this episode, right? We say things, maybe there's things we said two or three years ago, and they're just not true anymore. And the problem is like people kind of like hold on to that because it's recorded online and maybe they consumed it only last month or something. And so it's quite difficult for us to like update our audience. So the goal of this podcast today is literally to just update you on all the things that we think we said in the past that we don't really believe in anymore. And that's what we're going to do now. And we're going to start now with Mark, but before. Before, I want people to click on the subscribe button below. I want the thumb up to be smashed by people that are checking this out live because there's a bunch of people watching this live when we release the episodes on Monday, so you can come and hang out there. So if you're there and you didn't press the like button, then you can leave, please. Uh, and then we're going to get started with this episode now, Mark. Go ahead. Fake personas. So back in, I want to say maybe like three years ago, three plus years ago, it was pretty standard, not just in our recommendation, but a lot of people when running a, an affiliate marketing website, especially kind of smaller, newer websites, for whatever reason would choose to hide behind a, a sort of fake persona. And there are a few reasons why, in, in many cases, we were advising... Explain what a fake persona is first. So rather than Mark Webster and Gail Breton, the co-founders of Authority Hacker, who I can assure you are real people. Anyone I heard it's on, a deep fake. Anyone, on, on anyone watching on YouTube can verify this. <laughs> It, instead, we would have you know a fake name and even a fake photo of, of someone else, a model, or use this. What's that website uh, that generates AI? I can't remember. This face uh, doesn't exist or this, something. This, this person does not exist. Dot com, I think it is. Anyway, back in the day, we used to tell people, and we ourselves used to do this a lot with with some of our websites, is to put fake personas on there. A number of reasons for that. One is we thought it would kind of bridge the gap between us and our audience. Sometimes our audience would be, you know, female and older rather than young and male, like we are not so young anymore, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> At the time. <laughs> <laughs> At the time. Um, so that was one thing. Another thing was, and this is still true, to be honest, being worried about kind of copycats. So we have a bit of a audience, yeah. I guess, online and with online martyrs. So a lot of people are kind of like researching and trying to 
find out which other sites we're working on and stuff. So if we plaster our faces all over, it's kind of obvious and have to worry about copycats. And, and to be honest, that still is kind of a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a worry. But basically, when you have all these these fake personas going on, it becomes really challenging to build real relationships in your niche. And you you kind of put this glass ceiling above yeah, how exactly. far you can grow your site. So we had situations where people were asking us, you know, to come on podcasts or to meet them in real life or even just to like talk to them on uh, on Skype or whatever, and we we couldn't do it because like we weren't. You know, my fiance, she actually did that for her job as well for another site, and she ended up being invited to speak at a conference with a fake persona, and it was like, uh, <laughs> what do I do now, etc. Like she was on the biggest sites. I can't really tell the niche, but like. You know, DR ninety plus sites like front page, etc. Like, and it's like it was a complete fake persona. So, yeah, it's it's you don't get as much out of it if you're a fake persona. So, not only that, but there's this kind of like lack. It's a little. There's a little bit of a. It's a not a genuine thing. How moral is it to pretend to be someone else? Though you know, the counter argument to that is writers have pen names and stuff. It's like been going on for hundreds of years now. So it's not. The end of the world. I do feel it's a little bit disingenuous. I do feel you're kind of limiting how far uh, how far your site can grow, and the lack of ability to build real relationships in a niche is really what kind of kills it for me. So that's one of the tactics which we've certainly moved away from from recommendation recommending for for a number of years now. Anything else you want to say about? Fake yeah, personas? would you start a site with your face now, though? So, like, imagine let's say let's say you want to start like a pure like I don't know if you, you probably don't want to do that like a pure like tiny affiliate site like let's say you you probably don't want to do that like make a thousand dollars a month type site or whatever like so what would you do if me personally I I would not be starting a site like that so it's it's not really yeah, so yeah. much of an issue if I was just like a random person uh, I would definitely use my my own name and my own. Um, yeah. image uh, on the site. Sites which I'm starting now would tend to be kind of with a, a yeah, higher potential that. ceiling, you know, with a stage three kind of thing in mind. So it's, it's made perhaps less of an issue for that. I think what, we, what I would probably do is I would use the author I would hire. Like I would try to hire someone that actually knows the niche and I would use, like if, if I wanted to start a site myself and I would use them on the site, I'd be like, look, I put you as the main, uh, the main editor of the site on the website. And then I put their face forward because like people would just Google me and find the site otherwise. And then maybe when the site has a bit more authority, then and like it's like you can't just copy it in five minutes, then I would consider just swapping for me and getting into the niche, etc. And like doing this real stuff and being able to do that. But I would probably just start with my author's profiles, actually. I think you know, from the vast majority of people reading this who are not, not you know, problem, active yeah. in the online marketing space themselves, it's really not a problem, and there's no real reason why you can't just use your your own name and stuff. So yeah, I agree. Let's go on to the next one, which is overusing page builders, and we've been guilty of that for a long time. Not not so much lately. Like we've done a good job in the past, let's say two years. I think we haven't been too crazy about this, but page builders when you. Uh, We've been especially guilty of that with Strive Content Builder at the time, and we would just put boxes everywhere. And like you, you still see a lot of sites. I'm not gonna quote them, but it's some actual competitors of ours that just literally all their content is is red and yellow and blue boxes, and it's just. It looks ah, like every blog bad. post. <laughs> it looks like every blog post is long form sales page. 
Not only that, but what it does is um, it just adds a lot of code to the site, right? Because for a page builder to add a box, essentially it needs to create a new div, then it needs to create a subdiv for the headline, and another subdiv for the text in there. Maybe if you have a bullet list in there, then there's another subdiv, etc. And that's why people are crying about page builders. They're like, oh, it's slowing down my site so much, etc. That's because you build your site that way. But if you were building a site in HTML and making the site the same way, it would also be quite bloated. So. I think like simplicity in design and minimalism, I mean, look at a site like medium.com, for example, the way they lay out content is really, really cool. And it's like so minimalist. There's just a big image on top and it's just like one column of content and nothing else and no crazy big boxes or something, maybe like one tiny gray box, really once in a while, one or two per article and that's it. I think it's something that people need to come back from. If you're making a sales page, yes, you can do that. I mean, you can check some of our sales pages. Like you can go on the authority system sales page, like authorityhacker.com slash system. Then you'll see there's, there's a lot more bells and whistles and we're willing to do that because it's just easier to highlight features and benefits, etc. But when you're writing, basically I'm kind of separating the content that I'm writing for Google, where I just want people to land on my site from search, and the content that I'm using for convincing people, like a landing page for opting in, like a sales page, like a thank you page, like these things don't need to be super optimized and I can actually go a little bit deeper on the formatting. But like all our pages that are now aimed to rank on Google are actually not even built with page builders anymore, they're built on Gutenberg. We try to keep it extremely minimalist, you can check the latest blog post on the Toy Hacker, you will see that we have toned down a lot of that. And I think, uh, I think it works better than instead, I guess you'll be working on your images, but we'll be talking about that later. So I'll let you take the next one. Uh, the next one is ultra long content. So there was a period of time a few years back when people started to realize that really how important good content was, but no one could quite articulate like what good content actually was. So the default option seemed to be for everyone, oh, let's just make longer content because longer equals better, right? Well, in some cases, yes, longer content is much better content. This kind of stems from the days when people would order, you know, a 500 word article like it was some kind of commodity. So we wanted to like get away from that and we wanted to highlight how serious people should take like content quality. Uh, and we encourage people strongly to write much longer content. We ourselves on the Authority Hacker blog started writing oh 12,000 word articles regularly. We have some 20,000 ones, yeah. Yeah. And while there may be a lot of detail in there, it got to the point where we're kind of like writing it long just for the sake of writing it long. And it was almost being like padded out just by the extra words. This also meant that if you're on, on mobile, like God, reading a 20,000 word article on a, on a, on a cell phone. It's a scrolling like, contest, you know? Yeah, it's a horrible experience. So not only that, but it stopped really working after a certain yeah. point. So when you start getting, I mean, it depends on the SERP and that's really the, the, the point, but after you get start getting past a certain point, it's just it's useless. You're hurting yourself by writing more because it's, it's almost less relevant in a way. So the recommendation now is look at what Google wants from there. So look at type in type in the keyword to try and rank for. Look at what the people on page one, especially near the top, look how long their articles are, uh, and that's generally not exactly, but generally the the kind of length you should be aiming for. Tools like Surfer SEO do a really good job of aggregating this data, so it's really easy to kind of see quickly. But yeah, that's the kind you of you can just check the now. number of word count though. Like it's like you don't have to have Surfer SEO to check that. that. But the thing is, like I think there was really a, a shift in Google's in Google's algorithm where it used to just be completely over favoring long content, even crap long content. 
And now they, they, I think they, they finally got got it, like after like three years or something. And and you can check all most big marketers that used to create big content just don't do it anymore. And I think one trap with long content as well is that for us, we ended up just not creating content anymore because if we were not able to write 20,000 words, we just wouldn't do the post or something. And it's like, it was a bit shit actually. Like I, I'd rather just publish more regular, like one, 2,000 word content uh, in this case, videos this year, but um, it's like, it works much better. So yeah, long content, obviously if like the top 10 of your query is long content with 5,000 words, 6,000 words, you probably have to go for that. But if not, then I think being concise and being well illustrated and, you know, the page looking like simple and having strong headlines that really break the content, these things actually do matter more than having really, really, really long content now. And I don't think people are that impressed anymore. Like it's been overdone by marketers so much. Now I land on the page of long content, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, and it's like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Whereas before I was like, oh my God, amazing. It, not anymore. Like people write books and it's much longer content. The next one is going to be uh, using the last updated plugins. It's actually a reference to a blog post on Otoyaka, which is on otoyaka.com slash freshness, which I wrote about two years ago. It was like a, it was a hack actually, like it was a proper hack because basically there's all that schema data you have on your, on your page, right? So on a blog post, you have the publish date, but you have another piece of schema data, which is update date. And so the plugin I was recommending people install essentially allowed you to push that update date schema data on the page and also on the front end, like instead of your publication date. And when I implemented that, um, what it did is like it took a lot, a lot of like really old blog posts that were published like four or five years ago. And because we had been touching them up, essentially, like the publish date moved from like four or five years ago to like two to three months ago after edition, et cetera. And we saw rankings go like boom. And it's like I did that on like two other sites and boom, boom. It's like all the rankings just, there's all the, the screenshots on the, on the blog post right away. It was really good and it works really well. The problem is I think Google caught up on this <laughs> and it's not really working anymore to the point where when you install that plugin now, it doesn't even pick up the last update date. It doesn't show it up in the SERPs, which is how you knew that Google used that. So I don't recommend you use that anymore. Google is still biased towards freshness, but I feel they're like a little bit more careful with that. They don't just take everything at face value. They might be looking at like first index time and stuff like that uh, because they have all this data. They're so they're probably they looking at their own crawler data to see when it exactly. was really last updated rather than what you tell them, when you tell them it was. Exactly. I think before they were just trusting the metadata and now they're actually comparing and they're like, oh, actually, there was no update to that content because it worked even if you did not update the content, by the way. You could just press update on WordPress and your rankings would jump up. It was just insane. So yeah, it doesn't really work anymore. My recommendation of what you should do now instead, well, it's a little bit less flashy, but basically every time you do a substantial update to a blog post, just change the publish date inside WordPress, inside the default WordPress system, and you don't really need a third-party plugin. You still get a bonus in freshness provided you've actually updated your content and you get some of that effect, but you can't just like refresh the date with the plugin and just jump up in rankings. It was, it was great while it lasted, but I don't think it works anymore. Do you want to take the next one? Yeah, the next one's using stock images in content. So previously, especially guilty of this in like long list posts, our approach was stick as many stock photos in as possible. The more photos, the better. We had a deposit photos or Shutterstock we used so uh, many, yeah. um, subscriptions back then. And like we had, I remember in our agency, we had a, we downloaded so many photos that it was worth us to actually just keep them and store them in one database so like we could reuse them again and again across like different clients and stuff. This was all like downloaded illegally, like we paid for them all, but, um, but, 
Yeah, just the fact that we thought just by having images that was making the post better, but it wasn't. That's not to say don't use images. It definitely helps to break up the, the wall of text. Uh, and images, the correct images can help illustrate a blog post in, in a really good way. But that's what I want to kind of try and enforce now. Like they have to be good and they have to be meaningful. Just going to Shutterstock and searching in uh, and searching paintball and picking the first image that comes in and sticking it in there, especially if it looks like a stock image, it's going to make the article look, it's not going to make it look better. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. If you're into paintball, if you're like into paintball and you see a stock image on, a fo- on something, I'm like, uh, Fuck that, you know, it's like, it's just terrible. People have a sort of sixth sense about stock images now. So you have to be really, really careful. That doesn't mean don't use them at all. There are still some really, really good ones out there. You just have to use a bit more time to to look for ones that don't look like a stock image. Uh, Use them sparingly on your site and instead try and use illustrations, diagrams, screenshots if you can, personal photos of yourself doing the activity or photos you've taken of the the product or yourself in, you know, playing a paintball game if it's if we're talking about paintball. And that is a much more is a much better way to illustrate a post than than stock images. Yeah. That's what we did on the current uh, authority site system site actually. I'm not going to tell the niche because it's only for course members, but we basically went to take photos like for an entire day with Mark in different situations so we could have imagery for the website. And, it's and like, there's some some good hacks to this as well. Like you don't need to own all these products. Like we went to one of these, one of the locations where these specific products were sold <laughs> uh, and we just took some photos in that location. In the shop, yeah. yeah. In the shop, we took photos of products, et cetera. And, and we just put it in there, yeah. And yeah. nobody cares. And I think uh, a lot of people do that. It's like I know that um, I know some people making partnerships with uh, with stores that have big shops, and basically just uh, be like, "Hey, I'll just come at a dead time when there's nobody in the shop, and I just want to take some photos, and I'll pay you a hundred bucks for that or something." And then you, they can take photos of like all the range of products that they have in yeah. stock, and be like, "Actually, I'll give you the photos for your website or something if you want, if you want to use it." And it's kind of like a deal for everyone, you know. And then it's like uh, you can absolutely do that. It takes a bit more like hands-on approach. It's not just sitting in your room on your computer and being all nerdy and shit. But and, at and the this, same time, this is this is also true with writers you hire. So if you if you hire just like an SEO writer, they're not going to be able to do this. But if you find someone who's really passionate and plays paintball every weekend, they're going to have shitloads of photos of of them playing paintball, and you know that could be part of the. The package that you get as a the, the site owner, you know, you're getting to use their photos to license them as part yeah. of the content you order from them. Especially if they're into it, they want to grow their like social profiles, etc. So just make sure your site is laid out to like feature their Instagram and feature their Twitter, etc. And they'll be more interested in actually making great content so they can grow themselves in the niche. Which is fine. It's fine to help a writer grow in a niche. Most of them will probably not end up making a huge living from this anymore. Uh, anyway, so it's like uh, some of them will. Some of them will be like, well, uh, I, I'm big now and I'm quitting and you might have helped them throughout the way. But a lot of them will just be like small size influencers and still work with you because Writing content pays quite well if uh, they have a lot of time, basically. Let's talk about the next one, which is going to be push notifications. So I used to be a huge advocate of push notifications. I know Nia Patel still is, surprisingly. I mean, I think he co-owns one of the big uh, push notification companies. It's free, though. So I can't remember the name. Subscribers, I think. Subscribers.com. Uh, anyway, it's free. So it's like not so bad. But yeah, I used to recommend push notifications a lot because in our early tests, we found that the opt-in rate was really good. So, you know, and I'm sure it still happens on a lot of browsers. You know, you land on the website and you get that little pop-up like, hey, do you want to get the notification from the site? You click OK. And then now you can receive notifi- desktop notifications or browser notifications of that site 
on your phone, etc. And I think it was especially exciting for phones, actually, because it was a great way to subscribe, one click, and then you just get some updates with the rest of the notifications. The one thing that has changed, however, is, well, first of all, you got spammed by a lot of websites, so the click-through rate for push notifications went down a lot. And just overall, people have more and more push notifications. And second, browsers are changing the way they are displaying the opt-ins to push notifications. So, you know, before you could do it on page load and get that like crazy high opt-in rate, which kind of like was the reason why it was, in my opinion, comparable to email marketing at the time. But now browsers are making it so basically you have to click on a button to pop the pop-up and then actually uh, opt-in, which you know I would do for something like Facebook or maybe a tool like Asana or something that actually has like useful dynamic content where I want actual push notifications. But am I going to do it for like a content website? Especially one that you don't know. It's like really, an, yeah. I find it really invasive. Yeah, so it's like, it used to be good. It used to be the lazy email marketing because of the direction it's going and most browsers are going in that direction and just the technical, the technical issues that are going to arise from this. And also the drop in subscribers, like people just drop randomly from your list. You know, every time you send a push notification, you lose like six to 8% of your subscribers and you have no idea why they did not subscribe or anything. So for that reason, I would highly recommend that instead of having that call to action to push notifications, you actually do proper email marketing. It still works quite well. You know, Optin Monster is our tool of choice for pop-ups. It works really well. Stravis is a bit cheaper and can be good to get started. And yeah, do the good old email marketing. It just works out better and you will have a lot less problems and browsers will not uh, block it. I'm pretty sure. So the next point is only doing shotgun skyscraper link building. So we did a podcast a couple year a year ago. Explain what guys yeah, we, yeah. we did a podcast a year ago where we we talked for about an hour on how to do shotgun sketcher. It's basically a type of link building where you create a piece of content and you find people who have linked to similar pieces of content and then you ask those people to link to your content as well. But it's all done in kind of like a semi-automated way using like Ahrefs, Hunter.io to find emails and a bunch of tools to really kind of scale the process and you end up sending quite a lot of emails out. It's less targeted than the, you know, finding a specific site to guest post on and sending a personalized outreach. It's, it's only kind of semi-personalized. So... Yeah, if you if you're interested, go check out that that episode. We have uh, we made a whole course on it as well. Uh, it's just like super detailed. It's part of Authority Hacker Pro as well. But basically, for quite a few years, we were doing that as almost not not completely, but almost our only link building tactic. And it was like, well, if you want to start a site, all you need to do for link building is this. It will solve all your problems. And that was true to an extent. We started a site in sort of two thousand. Oh, worked. Yeah, seventeen. I think it was. Uh, and then we sold it at the start of 2019, so last year. Uh, and we only did Shotgun Skyscraper outreach for the outreach. Now, once you, for anyone that's done Shotgun Skyscraper, you know that it can kind of branch out into many, many different other types of links once you start getting in touch with people. You can, it generates a lot of guest posts and stuff like that as well. So there's a bit more diversity in the types of links you're getting. But essentially what was what was happening is because this worked really well, and especially in that niche we were doing, we taught this as like the only link building tool you'll you'll ever need. And I don't agree with that statement anywhere. It's definitely not the only link building to, uh, tactic you'll ever need. I think it's a really good one and it still has its place in the core of a range of link building tactics, which which one should should do. But I think it's really important now to mix in uh, you know things like Haro, Sniper, like high, highly personalized outreach, and and 
build a, like a, a portfolio or a library of link building processes, a prospecting process that you can you can run uh, concurrently to to start generating different types of links. One of the issues with um, shotgun skyscraper especially is the lack of very very high dr links so we did a study of the, the links we're getting and above dr60 it's not that that easy to to get with with shotgun type outreach so you need to go more personalized in that way so you know one of the learnings from that was we would then cap the sites we would outreach to in shotgun skyscraper to dr i think it was 55 or something so anything above that would above dr55 would be would go into a different process which we had where we would write a much more, more personalized and we vetted all that kind of thing there's still validity in the tactic it still works really well in some niches some other niches not so much especially a lot of people ask for money in, in those niches but i think they ask for money in, in things like finance and travel anyway so maybe it's not necessarily just the it's probably tactic. the niche yeah yeah and you know the other thing to be honest is it's a challenging tactic to implement well it's hard for newbies it's hard for beginners so you know having it as the only tactic in our beginners course probably wasn't the best idea we did update we fixed it yeah yeah we did update tasks last year actually it completely reshot the link building module so there's a bunch of new tactics and stuff in there as well to kind of like balance it out a bit more as well but that's uh yeah that's one thing that's the one tactic which changed yeah, I think it still works really well for new sites, especially though. Like I like it, like you know, from on that stretch from like DR zero to like DR thirty five forty, like you get a lot of bang for your buck with shotgun. I think after that, it's like I would say there's a bit of uh, diminishing returns because of like you struggle getting the super high DR links, and then you have to switch more to like the high DR stuff, like how high DR guest posting, proper uh, outreach for same like uh, skyscraper stuff, but like properly done but you still get a good bang for your buck on brand new sites and if you want to like do a lot of sites it's still an amazing tactic let's talk about the next point though and the next point is going to be starting sites in broad niches only right and i think this was especially true that we recommended that a lot at the beginning of authority hacker like basically my reasoning was like well what you do is you brand broad and you start, like, you just do multiple categories and then you just build, like, one category, et cetera, which still can work, right? I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying it's not the only way to do things. And uh, the reason I'm saying that is looking at all the recent core updates from Google, actually. What I'm seeing is, like, a lot of sites doing that tend to be a lot more volatile than sites that focus on just one thing for real. Like, I'm looking, you know, like a specific uh, breed of cat or, like, I don't know, like, one specific, uh, I don't know, like... a Snowblades, for example, could be an example of a smaller niche, not just all uh, winter sports, etc. So that kind of level of uh, thing. And I think as well, one thing that we've learned along the years is how to monetize content better. And so if you stack monetization with like affiliate, advertising, info product, like deeper affiliate with like high paying offers, et cetera, et cetera, then you can make actually quite good money from like a tiny niche. And when you catch a lot of long tail traffic for these niches, you actually get a lot of traffic, but not only that, but your audience is very focused. Because if you really build a broad site, uh, for like it's like if you build a site in-house, for example, like people care about 26 different things. So when you email your email list, it's hard to actually like talk to them on a more personal level. But if you make a site about snowblades and you email your email list, maybe it's smaller, but they know exact you know exactly what they want. They want like you know exactly the accessories they're interested in, etc. And so your ability to monetize these people is so much higher. And so the lack of traffic 
is compensated by a higher conversion rate and better ability to sell to people. And so that's why more and more I'm more interested in going into smaller niches and also for the people that are interested in having portfolios of sites, right? Having a portfolio of like broad sites is, is extremely complicated. We require a massive team, etc. Having a portfolio of small sites, it's a lot easier because the subs are so much less competitive that it doesn't move that much. You can have a site like ranking for like good keywords for like six, seven, eight years. And what it allows you to do is like work on other stuff while you're ranking and essentially banking for these keywords. And so if you want to run a portfolio, I think it's really, really good to run these smaller niches, basically. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think like there's no right and wrong answer to this. It's not like build small size, build, build large size. Because one interesting nuance that, that we sort of discovered when we, again, the site I mentioned earlier, we, we sold start last year, was that the site itself was really broad. But 99% of the content was in one section of one category. Yeah. And, you know, we could have just made the site around that. But for whatever reason, we, we made it much broader. But that worked, right? Because all of the content was hyper focused. We were promoting, you know, all a great deal of the affiliate content was promoting a handful of products. And so we could like negotiate higher commissions. You know, we were getting like bumps from the affiliate managers because we we're doing volume, all this kind of stuff. Like the focus in like in doing that led to greater monetization opportunities. And I also believe some kind of like relevancy signals to, to Google as well, because the site ranked yeah. really, really well in that specific category. I believe that too. I believe that the relevancy is massive when you like focus on one thing and uh, and it, you need a lot less links, you need a lot less DR, et cetera. You don't need to get to DR60 or something. Like a lot of like very focused site DR30 are killing it in traffic because they're so relevant. So yeah, it's like if you want to run multiple sites, I think that's the way. All right, so let's go on to the final point, which is outsourcing all of your content. So previously, we when we first got into, we first moved out of the agency business into building authority sites. We saw these big websites, and we're like, oh, "Wow, you know, you could you could just write 500 articles and you know monetize them with Amazon, and uh, you know stick a few ads, and if one article could make 50 bucks a month, imagine what 500 could make." And th this was kind of our attitude going into this in the very early days. And to be honest, we hadn't monetized sites particularly well in the early days as well. So the idea was just like, let's focus on volume of content, volume, volume, volume. Five, six years ago, I mean, most content out there was pretty bad, uh, yes. let's be honest. So you didn't really need to do much other than write a half decent article to be competitive. Now that's changed slightly, some niches more than other, but building these kind of high volume industrial commercial content mills, content factories within your organization to output, you know, 100 articles a month or something like that. I don't think it's a, such a great tactic for, for authority sites. Part of it is down to kind of relevancy. Part of it's down to just not being able to make sure that the quality, you're hitting the right quality goals. We've fallen victim to this a couple of times where we've put out loads and loads of content. And, you know, looking back on it, it hasn't been that great because when you're publishing 50 articles a month, you can't pay close enough attention, you can't read every article, you can't double check it. So you need a team in place, you need systems and processes in place to, to check it. If those aren't good, or even if they are and something happens, it can be disastrous and you can end up with a, a site full of average content. It becomes not worth the investment. It's much better to, at least in our experience, it's much better to focus your energy and produce fewer but very high quality pieces of content than just churn out 
50, 1,000 word articles in a month. Yeah, it's actually cheaper as well in the end. Like even though you spend a lot more per piece of content, it becomes cheaper. I mean, I'm kind of looking at this as a craftsman's versus factories analogy, right? And it's like nowadays, like, you know, when we started, actually like big companies were still pretty shit at online content, but now they get it, you know, and they're even on the affiliate subs and they even on all of that. And, and they will beat you at volume. They have the money, they have the offices, they have the capital to back it up and they can wait 10 years before they make their money back. You cannot. So it's going to be very hard to build to beat these guys uh, in the long run because they're going to they're going to just keep churning content and they don't care if they're at a loss like these big companies they don't care they just get more investment or whatever and it's like and it's fine it's like people want their return much later than you want it so they they're able to outweigh you and so the way I'm looking at it I think I like to look at it on YouTube is probably the best one to look at is on YouTube you essentially have two types of publishers you have solo YouTubers and you have big corporations like BuzzFeed versus Casey Neistat, for example. Um, that would be a good example. And so the only people that are able to essentially face these big corporations that create all these massive amounts of content are the ones that put go the extra mile, the mile that like the people working for the big corporations will not do. And then the platform rewards them with massive a massive reach for the size of their organization. And they are the one making the most profit of the internet today. Uh, the MKBHD of tech or the KZ Neistat or something, because these big corporations, they invest so much fucking money in making like a thousand videos a month or something. Even though they make money, they just like, uh, they spend it back. Whereas it, la small it, guys, lacks, it lacks that final kind of 5%, the personality, the just awesomeness, which, you know, to be honest, your craftsman versus factories analogy, I know historically you're terrible at analogies, <laughs> but I think that's quite a good analogy, actually. I'll give you this one. Ooh, like first time. Yeah. Then we'll make a podcast on like five analogies we, we regret now, you know. So, um, but, but yeah, so I, yeah, exactly. But I think it's a good one because, you know, there's factories, if you want to buy a knife, right, there's factories and there's still craftsmen that made knife and then they, they charge thousands of dollars for like the best cooking knives or something because they're able to go that extra mile and people are willing to pay a lot more for these extra 5 or 10% of quality. And I think that's, for most people who listen to this podcast, unless you're working for a big corporation, you are in a craftsman choice. The question is, are you a good craftsman or a bad craftsman? And a bad craftsman just makes minimum salary. And a good craftsman makes a lot of money, whether you are a hairstylist, whether you are, you know, someone that, um, I don't know, what could it be? someone who sues or something, like creates like clothes and so on, like this kind of stuff, like there's a wide range of salary between the top and the bottom. And I think if you start understanding like online publishing in these terms, then it's going to change the way you create content. You're, you're not gonna try to beat these big corporations on quantity, but rather be like, okay, I can't take these 2000 keywords, but what if I focus on just these 10 and I destroy their content on this and what do I do? How do I get all the products? How do I get all these photos we talked about? How do I do all of that? And that's how you survive and that's how you make a lot more profit than they will because your costs are also not, even if one piece of content costs you a thousand bucks to do, you only need to create 10 of them. They, they create a thousand pieces at $400 and they make, they spend way more money than you on that. So I think that's the way and that's why we don't believe you should just mindlessly outsource all your content. You should just put some mind into each page you publish because you might get a lot more reward for that, basically. 
That's yeah, just not to say like that's not to say don't outsource content. I mean, we're still yeah. we are still outsourcing a lot of content at the moment, but it's just a different mindset you need to take to ensure quality over quantity. Yeah, I mean, we we kind of like divide our content between support content and main content now, and support content can be outsourced and can be targeting like low hanging keywords support like. Content that is related to one main piece of content we've done. So like we'll take one main piece of content, we'll brainstorm all the keywords around and create a page for each. Essentially these support pages, these we outsource, you know, with a decent editorial process, but we're happy to outsource that. And the main content, usually Mark or I will dedicate some time to this to make sure it's it's great. And it's like all like some of our staff can work on this now, but it's still quite hard to like get this to a level that like where it's really awesome. Because like it's like the internet will doesn't care how hard you're trying. They just care about the end result. And it's hard to create really, really good content that stands out. And it's like, yeah, some stuff can help, but it's quite it's quite difficult. We will still be at least looking at it from far, usually. I think I'm gonna be closing the podcast here. So thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to listen to our episodes, you can either go on YouTube, and if you're watching now, you can subscribe and click on the thumbs up. It really helps us distributing the podcast. So if you enjoy the content, don't hesitate to do that. And you can also listen to this on audio platforms. So you can listen on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on SoundCloud. And well, thank you for coming. We hope to see you next week. Next Monday, we'll release another podcast episode. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.